Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome into the weekly hoon. It is just after four o'clock on the kaka. I'm here with Peter Bale. Love your haircut. Thanks, Bernard. Well, I, I figured since we're all in basically in prison that I might as well get a prison haircut. And of course, I, I, I did it myself, uh, which took quite a while, but I, it's certainly a lot better and actually longer than the last lockdown haircut that I gave myself, which was with a, with a five millimeter um, blade instead of a 16 millimeter. So this is this is practically a shaggy, a shaggy haircut by, 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 by any difference. Next next stop, I'm going to have to do, give myself a prison tattoo. Uh, no, no. What will you use? What will you tattoo? What will you put on? Uh, what would I? What will I tattoo? Um, the traffic lights. Be, be kind. <laughs> the be kind. Be yeah, kind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have. I have got a range of. I've got a range of things. It's, it's a question of where to put them, of course. Yeah, ah, where you yes. put them on your body, but um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If it was be kind, I could have it in mirrored. Mirrored. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mirror, a mirrored tattoo on my hey, chest. Exactly. So but to, I can just but, tell myself to be kind in the mornings when I look at my chest. That's that's right. But between yeah. the between the abs of the six pack, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or in my case, a uh, yeah, more of a barrel than a six pack. <laughs> yes. So enough of that foolishness, Bernard. I might be the traffic lights. So you've had a bit of a hectic day, I think, as has the poor old prime minister with a five point eight uh, Richter scale earthquake, you know, gently interrupting her, which has already yet again gone viral to make her world's most popular prime minister. But she's announced some stuff that, um, while I think we all understand it, is pretty alarming. The thing that really struck me listening to it since I've been under lockdown in Auckland for the last nine weeks and practically crawling out of my skin, although I am in a bubble with some other people who've kept me slightly sane, uh, is this idea that highly unlikely that Auckland will go down until at least November the 29th. Is that right? That's right. That is possibly when the government might make a decision about another announcement. She didn't rule out other decisions, but she did rule out it happening any time before that, I think, yes? Yes. Uh, I don't think that Auckland is going to open up under the system before early December. One thing that was interesting from the PM that wasn't in any of the documents was that she said the current modelling was that Auckland would hit the 90% double-dosed in total average sometime in early uh, December. Yeah, so... If we if we're not going to choose to open up until the twenty, you mean at the current rate? Yeah. Or assume, yeah. So they're going to have to if they want to open up on the 29th or any time before the 29th, they're going to have to accelerate vaccinations again and get to the I think it's 170,000 Aucklanders who haven't been vaccinated at all yet. Yes. Plus and, Brian Tamaki's crew. Yes. Um, which, right. which may be one and the same. Maybe they could grab him as they take him into court next time. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, it, it is an. Exp- I mean. What's going on here? Is it is it in fact a understandable version of the Skeg report? Because you know I don't want to just beat up the government on this because I think there has been a little bit of confusion and there has been certainly the national sense of a little bit of grief in a sense in going out of the elimination strategy. It would appear, but this is quite a bleak outlook for Auckland, at least at the very least, Auckland. Yeah, I think it's dawning on everyone that. We can't open up Auckland or the rest of the country until we're well over that 90% mark Mm. for uh, first doses. Otherwise, we're going to get swamped uh, through the hospital system. Now, when you look at what's happening in the UK at the moment, where they are very highly vaccinated, but having enormous numbers of cases uh, adjusted for population. I'm just calling it up, 52,000 
daily cases, Oof. 115 daily deaths, although down 42 from this day last week. Um, you know, I think that's about four if in New Zealand. That would be about four and a half thousand cases a day if we were at the same rate. And of course, it's causing the rest of Europe to go slightly ballistic because they're seeing it rampant now in the UK. And of course, there, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, uh, you know, which we need to think about as well. And I'm, I do want to come back to New Zealand if you don't, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, but the, you know, in the UK, the vaccination program has been extremely successful. But it's also been going on for quite a few months, and so they're also they've also got the problem potentially now of some of the vaccine, um, uh, the the immunity waning after six to six to nine months. Of course, there's been some very good news over uh, overnight, which is that a third dose, let's not call it a booster, booster, a third dose of Pfizer dramatically increases the um, its effectiveness back up into the to the late 90s. But so the UK has got that. It's also had um, many, many open, big open events, and it would appear that very few people outside Scotland are wearing um, are wearing masks. So there's a lot of there's, there's no you know, and, and again, just just under I don't mention this today that lockdown is lockdown is one thing, but there are other there have to be other uh, uh, healthcare measures. So yes, the UK is a bit is a bad example, but is is there a sense? I mean, it just let me ask that question again. Is this just the way the skeg thing, Sir Christopher, Christopher, Christopher Skeg, is it right? Uh, Colin Skeg, David Skeg, yeah. David Skeg. I apologise, the epidemiologist. Is is this just the way it was always going to roll out, or is there a bit of chaos here? I I think the poor state of our hospital system, with um, less than half the ICU beds per capita of Australia, and the fact that Delta and the, the waning effectiveness of the two-dose Pfizer is all going to come together at the end of the year. It has really worried the Prime Minister and the government. Also, they've got intense pressure coming at them from iwi and Māori mm. medical groups going, you know, right now we've got less than a quarter of our young Māori who are vaccinated. There is a real risk here, if we opened up right now, that you would have... 10, 20,000 cases of long COVID and a, yes. d- d- awful... in a particular racial community. Yes. Which, yes. Is, which would be unbelievably damaging to, 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 the, to New Zealand constitutionally. Yeah. But on the other yeah. hand, but aren't we also going to get. So I, I, I want you to actually let me give you a pause. Get, let me, let me uh, give you a moment to talk while you think, which is I want you to come back and t- say what you think the key dates and key announcements are. Mm. But on this issue of um, the 90% average we have to get to in Auckland before we're allowed out. It's all three, the Auckland DHVs, correct? And it is a 90% average across them all. Yep. And it is 90% of the entire eligible population over 12. It is not 90% of Maori, 90% of Pakeha, 90% of Pacifica. It is 90% of the of the total population, which means that there will probably still be quite a lag in the Maori or potentially quite a lag in the Maori uh, vaccination rate. That's that's right. There is going to be tens of thousands of unvaccinated people in South Auckland who uh, will be at risk, if they aren't already, of catching COVID. And uh, that's why the government, um, they thought this was the balance, the best balance they could strike between, they could have gone, okay, we want 90% vaccination rates for young Maori in South Auckland. And frankly, that would have meant Auckland staying locked down well into next year. So they mm. couldn't do that politically and you could argue economically. 
and the and they also could have said uh, we're going to not open up Auckland or anywhere else in the country until we've got 90% vaccination rates for all those youth in Northland, for example. Mm. I understand today we've got community cases in Northland. And uh, if they'd done that, again, well into next year. So the government has tried to walk the line between opening up now and causing tens of thousands of long COVID cases amongst young Mm. Māori, or waiting until next year and probably having a riot, frankly, uh, in Auckland. And at the moment they, they are, you know, teetering, I think, a bit on on outright public opposition to what's going on, particularly because we're in there. I called it in a column earlier this week, I called it white line fever. You know, this point where you can see the line and you want to score the try and put your put your hand over yeah, and you're, yeah. de- you're desperate um, and you start, start doing you crazy things. Hospital, that she's been given a hospital pass soon so that I then have to look up exactly what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do know what it means, yeah, yeah. but I, I didn't know a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but but the, so the earliest possible is going to be going to be November the 29th to relieve Auckland of pressure. That's right. Yeah. But she has also said that she thinks it will still take at current rates to um, December the 3rd yep. to, to, to get up to 90% average in Auckland. Now, there were also some very, very strong messages about the incentive to uh, be vaccinated. And one could argue, I would have thought from the tone, that there was also a very clear message to those who were choosing not to be vaccinated that they're going to suffer from that choice or that things will be closed, many things will be closed to them. And I wonder, Bernard, if we're already seeing, I think you, you probably saw that remarkable story yesterday that um, I think it was in Taitokara, uh vaccine sessions were being uh, blocked, or effectively taken up by anti-vaxxers with fake names and so on to bugger up the process. Now, aren't we going to see some fairly interesting potential confrontations? I mean, this is not talk about radio, uh, but we could turn it into that. Um, <laughs> You know, there's there, there's going to be some very very interesting converse and unpleasant confrontations. I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, it's, the it's absolute, and, and, and the, the pressure and is absolutely intense. And you're right that this extraordinary thing where some bunch of dickheads, for, to to be frank, went to the trouble of ringing up mm. this century, ringing up going online to mm. um, essentially book out the booking so that mm. others couldn't get vaccinated. It's just obscene. Yeah. And so that's that's re- that's really concerning, and shows that. Um, to be frank, I, I've I've lost patience with some of the crazy anti-vax stuff that's going on, and I I think we have restricted so many people's freedoms for so long. It's been so costly for so many. It was an extraordinary interview last night on Checkpoint, where. Um, oh yes, Lisa, I heard it with Lisa, the poor woman trying to come oh, and come across the border to um, I know. look Lisa, after her Lisa, dying thirty-six-year-old. I think nephew. it was um, nephew, awful with bowel cancer. Yeah, yeah, and and you you think of those those countless examples. I mean, that's just one of them, mm. where she would have, of course, um, gone into Auckland and not left again. She was double dosed. He was double dosed. Apparently, he'd he'd um, this man dying of cancer had gone to the trouble of. Getting out of bed himself, absolutely. Yep. Just so he could. That sounded. That sound. I mean, it was. They did let it go on a very long time. That story, but it also sounded as though it was very much a kind of computer says no type answer from a bureaucrat. Rather, I mean, it was a very insensitive. It seemed a very insensitive way to handle it. Although, as you say, those people are under pressure as well. Yeah, and um, it's no one's in an easy position here. Um, 
but the, the social pressures are building to a crescendo. Well, let me ask you about, again, this is not talkback radio, but let me ask you about another social pressure which I worry about. And I thought this was probably one of the reasons why the Prime Minister earlier this week talked about the 124 suburbs in Auckland where COVID has now been detected, that there is, I suspect, deep concern about the focus on South Auckland and, the, and deep concern about the focus on Maori and Pacifica people. And it was very interesting. The, I think it was $120 million in total of additional funding to uh, get iwi vaccinated and try and solve this problem. But I'm, is, it, is it really something that is about money to get to these people? I mean, you, you interviewed uh, Rowery Jansen mm. a couple of weeks ago. What is the issue? Is it misinformation and disinformation that these communities are particularly susceptible to and their mistrust of government, or is it access? It's a couple of centuries of disconnection and distrust between communities who've had their land stolen and their lives blighted by the Crown. And the Crown is the government. And the institutions of the Crown and the DHBs are amongst the biggest and most prominent in every communities and been there for decades. Those relationships are bad because people are not trusted. I mean, mm. Taranaki, for example, South Taranaki is Parihaka. You know, this, yeah. is, this is where people have never trusted the Crown and have repeatedly been um, uh, uh, discriminated against, um, uh, not trusted. Uh, every time someone asks them for money, there's always a means testing. There's always a, you know, a procurement process. And what, what's interesting to me is that um, I'm told from within the bowels of government here that last time, so the first round of lockdowns, a lot of those rules about procurement, mm -hmm. about effectively, you know, good public practice, i.e. don't give money to uh, people who aren't trusted by the overall community, yeah. a lot of those, uh, and, and there was actually a lot of money given, rightly, to a whole bunch of local community iwi groups without too many questions being asked mm -hmm. and it was very effective uh, this time around the old disciplines of the public service about you know applications and triplicate um uh competitions for funds um everyone being checked to make sure that you know everyone's of mm. good character and uh, doesn't have yeah. you know do you think that's been too too heavily handled yeah handled i mean the, the, yeah so the details from taranaki from Taraifiti and from Northland are awful. So the community groups, the iwi groups who applied to get funds to do vaccination projects, you know, still going through the process of, of getting their money out. And this extraordinary story in the last week, which for me is emblematic of the problem, of the um, the doctor's centre in Takaha, in Taraifiti, um, uh not being well enough connected or trusting of the DHB to the point where they knew they needed a vaccination van, couldn't get the money or didn't feel confident mm, enough yeah, to ask for them. To do a, a just give it all, and so they did, get, did yeah. a give a little program, which, you know, that's absolutely awful and extraordinary. And um, part who, of... Who, who in those communities, you know, again, not to, not to turn myself into Sean Plunk, Plunkett, but if you're a 36-year-old and under Maori person in... Um, Taranaki, do you really not know where your local vaccine centre is? Have you not driven past one? Do you not have access to it? Absolutely. Is, it, is, is, is money actually going to be the, the question here about getting them access? Or is it that, that they're unconvinced because they're not 
well, con- connecting with us through conventional media, you know, mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, so there's a there's a combination of a lack of access. You know, not everyone has cars that they can just jump in and go down to the the GP centre. Um, there's a lack of uh, vaccinators. There's uh, on top of that the long involved discussions that have to be had, uh, in which you go through the rolodex of dumb ideas that people mm. have picked off at the internet and r- r- shred them one by one and yeah. um, all sorts of extra hard work has to be done. Now, there will be some cases that your hardcore anti-vaxxers who I don't have a lot of sympathy for, um, but there's such a large number still, you know, 5% mm. of... Um, and they'll get harder, you know, they'll harden up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Prime Minister and the government have been reluctant, and the police have been reluctant to really push hard. You know, riot shields at protests, we haven't seen those. Yeah, I think it's very, very wise as well. I yeah, just, yeah. I, I, I don't think that's us. It, it worked very badly in Melbourne. It's worked very badly in the UK. It's only solidified, you know, solidified the freedom groups as they, as they like to characterise themselves. But I wonder, Bernard, whether maybe we, not necessarily you and me, but the media needs to do more about how to address some of these myths. You know, I feel as though stuff has done a great job on this, perhaps the Herald to some extent, although the Herald's also written, had some pretty dodgy um, commentary about it, but, um, and will almost certainly continue to do so because it sells. But the disabusing of myths you know, by by, how, what can we do there? Do you think? Because I, I, you know, I've done a lot of work in disinformation, not not spreading it, but trying to combat it. Mm. Well, I think um, the accidentally pulling the plug on Facebook for about six months would do the trick. Oh yes, 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 the usual <laughs> solution to that. Yeah. Well, you know, um, seriously, this would not be such a big issue if it wasn't for Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Um, funneling and um, spreading and weaponizing these mistruths for um, close to a decade. And yeah. particularly because we're behind the world just in the timing of all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so much of this stuff is pumped out of America, which is um, hyper, hyper partisan. You know, the, the noise there is just so extreme. Yeah. And the so way the algorithm is... Let's address just a sure. couple of points that have come up on this on the, in, the, in the very um, uh, grateful group of chats on the side. Um, I think those that is probably... that I think that, well, I believe those channels to be a probably substantial reason why young people mm-hmm. in some of these critical um, racial groups are community groups are not... Um, uh, appearing in the vaccinated lists as much as they should, because the person makes um, Julian makes a very good point about older older people who, who are aware of their own health risks a little bit more. Um, so I think we do need to do something to reach reach those people. But I, I um, you know, as we saw with the prime minister, cannot sit in the car with every person who needs to get uh, you know in a vulnerable community who needs to get um, vaccinated. Um, I, I think also there is a, there is a, a friend of mine who's a doctor, and I hope probably on this uh, on this call actually. Um, you know, there is a significant, a surprisingly significant number of people who have needle phobia, oh, and yeah. so sometimes I think you know when we describe it as the jab, and when everything on television <laughs> is is some sweaty politician with his shirt off getting a getting a needle in his arm, you know, it's barely a neck. Um, so it, you know, I'm just wondering whether we you know there, there may be a sort of shift of tactics required from all of us to describe it a little bit differently, to describe the benefits 
and to disabuse people of some of the risks. I mean, this 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 interesting news about Pfizer overnight that the that the third dose is so effective mm, yeah. should give us great hope. And of course, the um, you know the mRNA method is going to come in many many other things to address many other uh, critical critical illnesses and crit- critical uh, problems. And it's a you know it's it's nothing short of a miracle that it's come that so many of them or several of them have come in the time that they have. Yeah, no, I, I, to, I agree. Thanks to BioNTech and Moderna and yeah, Pfizer. Yeah, and, no, yeah. I, I think you're right. It's a, a national, collective, local, personal effort mm-hmm. to essentially convince, contact, do whatever it takes to get people over the line. Mm-hmm. The big-ish news today that it was the uh, clarity from the government about the legislative support for yeah. the mandates and the use of vaccination certificates by businesses. And also, and this really wasn't made clear in any of the documents and cropped up in um, Grant Robertson's speech where he said, I personally want to link the gifting of the yes. all this extra support money uh, to businesses with the line, they have to be using their vaccination mandates, which is um, that really does apply a lot of pressure to businesses in a good way, I think. A, they're going to have legal protection, which a lot of them are still worried about. And B, it's going to be saying, uh, as the Prime Minister tried to do today, saying to everyone, you will not have, uh, there will be no jab, no job, no fun. <laughs> No, 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 haircut. no. <laughs> that's right. You, you'll you'll have to do it yourself. And, you know, they, they're coming at it from all angles, which is great. I just think that we have underestimated the role of the um, misinformation and we have been too soft, frankly. We should see this as a national security threat. I agree. So when, I'm not. I'm not going to suggest saying mm. fa- fa- turning Facebook off, but I absolutely think that the misinformation, disinformation, is a national security threat. Um, Mr. Anderson on here says we haven't seen much of the rest of the world. We, we, the, we can't necessarily blame every. I mean, I, I, you, if you if you subscribe to my uh, World Bulletin from the spin-off every week, you will get news from the rest of the world. Uh, and I should actually, in fact, will next week start putting in a weekly COVID bulletin in it, if you like, or possibly even do one for Bernard's mm. Kaka, because you're absolutely right that Russia is in a grim state mm. at the moment. Mm. Moscow's just gone into lockdown, and part of that is the deep, deep, deep mistrust and justifiable mistrust of most Russians for their own government and particularly for their own Sputnik uh, vaccine. Uh, because, uh, and in China, foreign vaccines aren't, aren't allowed at all. Uh, I don't know, I, I can, I'd be pretty certain that Putin has, has got Pfizer rather than Sputnik, but I don't <laughs> me spreading right. disinformation. And, and Romania as well, you've got, a, you've got a country there with absolutely deep distrust of uh, its own government, and particularly in Romania's case, of its own health service. Um, so we have, you know, we don't suffer from some of those. And of course, what we also have at the moment is a prime minister who is pretty much committing all her political capital, I would say, Bernard, to the next couple of months, right? And it's not going to be easy. You know, if we get to 90% double dose, that will be higher than anywhere else in the world. Portugal, from memory, has one of the highest rates, and it's not yeah. over 90% double vaxxed. That's right. So- so, and Port- Portugal and Ireland have done extremely well, but of course, and this is another, you know, I think so, uh, maybe um, Grant Robertson made this point today as well, that most other people have, most other countries have achieved very, very high vaccine rates, having lost thousands of people to the disease yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. And so we can count ourselves lucky. We've already criticised many times on this, not that again, that it's talk, talk back radio because we're not just critics, 
Um, the you know there are questions about the vaccine rollout, and yet I think it's also the case as um, you know as we've as we've heard that maybe the vaccine rollout in New Zealand would not have been so effective if um, if we hadn't had the threat of Delta sitting over the top. Yeah, of and you know, and that, now that it's that the whole incentive, you know, it has acted as an incentive. Yeah, and the the whole um, increase, particularly in the last two or three weeks of cases is acting as an as a as a driver for many people who would have you know a lot of people are busy in their lives they leave things to the last minute they act on impulse on on one of those and uh just having it in your face every day i could actually get this thing Mm. me Mm. i could get it well that's going to force you to and i it is sad it's a sort of a paradox really that you you need to be threatened with death to actually do something to stop yourself from dying yeah. but in this case um it it is it is going to happen the key thing is when that threat happens uh you want to make sure that it's really easy for someone to on on impulse so to speak go and get the vaccine and yes. for for a lot of people in these more more remote areas you know um for, i mean w- one thing i like to think about when I think about these sorts of um, remote areas and the problems that many communities have is around the driver's license. So for example in uh, Gisborne and all around that area where it takes hours to why, dri- why, why, drive, why, why, drive, yeah, drive yeah. anyone, if you're a kid who needs a driver's license to get a job, A, you have to be in Gisborne on the one day or two days every month when the right um, person has driven up from Wellington to do the Mm. tests because they've removed the local testing station years ago in the latest series of cutbacks. And um, and a lot of these kids don't have people with enough petrol in the car to Mm. go and get the license. Now, that sort of entrenched difficulty in mm. accessing those sorts of services is a real thing and and that's where you know the bus driving the two hours out there with with auntie um auntie auntie cindy i suppose i suppose you could say is is really going to make a difference and uh, you know it's extraordinary some of the stories we're hearing from various community groups about how they've been trying for months mm. to get to get through there and just yesterday and i made a point of including this uh, in the email this morning, John Tamahiri, who's not, you know, a flavour of the month with everyone, and certainly not with Labour, where he fell out with them a few years ago, um, you know, he has had to take the Ministry of Health to the High Court to get the data he needs to go out and vaccinate people. He's His organisation has delivered half a million vaccines. He's not like, you know, someone with a of chili bin in the trunk, you know, off to vaccinate their mates. This is a serious operation. And the, two weeks ago, they tried to get the data. The Ministry of Health says, oh, privacy, privacy. Um, and eventually, uh, the um, Waipere Data Trust had to take them to court. Then the Ministry of Health said, oh, yeah, well, okay, all right, we'll do something, come up with a deal. And then yesterday, yesterday the Ministry of Health came up with a, 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 a half-baked bunch of data which the Waipere Data Trust said, that's not going to work. And, you know, again, the lack of trust and connection between these, frankly, Pākehā institutions and marginalised uh, groups in our society is hurting us big time. This widening of inequality, these massive reforms and um, cutbacks that have happened over the last 30 years have are coming home to roost mm. in the most awful way. Now, do you think, Bernard, also that there's, that there's a risk of... Um 
not on our channel, obviously, but that people will be taking out their frustration on other racial groups in this. Well, luckily, we, we haven't had that sort of outright um, uh, racial tension that you've seen, at, say, let's say, in the United States. Yeah. But I think uh, what we will see soon is uh, a lot of... Um, people starting to break the rules and, um, you know, um, getting together. I mean, the, the case of the party over the weekend with a whole bunch of people on, on yeah. the North Shore, that's an outright case of, you know, the, the rules don't apply to us. Um, we're sick of this. We're just going to do it anyway. And once you get a, a critical mass of that um, defiance and lack of cooperation with the rules and when you have enough people saying, you know what, those kids are bloody right. I'm sick of this yeah. damn lockdown and I'm sick of having to wait for that group in uh, Gisborne to get vaccinated. I want to get on with my life. And it's almost Christmas and, you know, we were going to have summer and, and you know, I can sort of get that. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, feel- I, I, yeah, I, I think it is extreme, you know, now that you, it's also quite difficult to, to live under lockdown in the way we're supposed to be at the moment mm. where we can now enter other people's uh, terraces, sit outside, conceivably in a nice breezy area, but not go into their toilets. That's right. Things like you know, that <laughs> kind of thing makes this very difficult to actually manage. I, I have, yeah. a tr- I mean, I have a tremendous sympathy for me trying to manage it, and I have tremendous <laughs> sympathy for people with, you know, more family than I do, and and certainly younger people. Oh, it's yeah. extremely difficult. So someone on the on the chat, and we should go to some other stories, sure, but sure. just raised the question of the Wanaka couple, and whether it was convenient that we hadn't heard hadn't heard. Oh, they, they have been the charged. Game. Yeah, they, they have been charged, and they're due. To, supposedly, the last story I've just seen from RNZ or found just by searching on it, they're due in court this month, which would mean next week, I imagine. I can say that I'm aware that, you know, the court system is somewhat jammed up at the moment, particularly anything that involves um, juries, although not not that this would necessarily be a jury, jury trial, but it, they uh, they do have a court date, but just isn't in the... Um, just isn't in the... Um, in that particular story, which day it is, but I imagine that they will be in next week. But I was wondering the same thing myself. And the, and the, some of those people at the Red Veil vale party have been um, fined. Yes, well, that's um, that's good. But I think they're 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 holding up the dam uh, with a couple of fingers, and it feels like it's about to break. And uh, the government did their best today. Uh, I still think uh, they're they're in a bit of a mess here because we didn't really beef up the hospital system over mm. the last year and a half. Uh, we could have been more aggressive on the mandates, the fast testing, and also the vaccination programs, and uh, we are where yeah, we so are. Yeah, so there's a couple of there's a couple of critical ones, which they haven't entirely... I mean, I, every time I hear Andrew Little complain about his own department and his own DHBs, I kind of wonder what he's actually been doing as as, as health minister. When I, you know, RNZ had a very, very good analysis this morning, I think, about the number of um, number of uh, room, you know, special rooms that the um, uh, what do you call it, pressurised rooms mm-hmm. that have been created. You know, it really isn't. It, we have had quite a bit of time to prepare for some of this. Yeah, and a lot of the uh, public services' uh, natural instincts to say no to spending requests and to try to. Um, drive every everything into the um, business as usual procurement process uh, is um, coming home to roost mm. as well. Mm. Hey, I thought I'd um, uh, jump overseas now before we yeah, come, come back <laughs> come back home. Anything yeah, to get away. Not for COVID, please. Yes, yes. Tell me about hypersonic missiles. 
Well, it's a it's a fantastic story and a and a very, very sort of cool and interesting story if you like nuclear weapons or at least space travel or some connection between the two. And the Financial Times uh, published a story at the beginning of this week, uh, which I put into the uh, into the spin-off uh, World Bulletin about a rather remarkable, and, you know, these weapons have been coming. We know Russia has been developing them. We know China's been developing them. They're called hypersonic missiles, and they're hypersonic because they go at five times the speed of sound, which is actually less than a, than a, than an ICBM, traditional ICBM missile coming in. But the point is that they can, they glide, and they can be directed and change direction, change course as they're flying around the world, uh, either in orbit or um, just inside the atmosphere. And so they're traveling at five times the speed of sound, and they're much, much more difficult to, um, to, to track and to counter because they don't have a predictable uh, arc, a predictable ballistic arc that an that a, a intercontinental ballistic missile has. And the Financial Times is the only publication that's reported this so far. I mean, other people have peeled off and reported from the FT, but the FT noted and, and said it had four five sources uh, about a missile launch in August um, of the of a, of a Chinese Long March missile, uh, which it said launched a um, one of these one of these um, uh, hypersonic missiles. It landed somewhat off course, but it went right around the world before it did so. <laughs> uh, what they've now, uh, you know, and I, I, I've been looking for confirmation from this. Uh, you've had. American defense officials talking about the risk of this, but no one has come out and confirmed it. And of course, China denied that it had done any such thing and said that the um, Long March launch was actually to test a, re a, a reusable spacecraft. Um, the FT has actually doubled down on the story and said there's actually been a second undetected launch, wow. an un 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 unpublicly announced um, launch by the Chinese to do the same thing, and that US. Defense, defense officials are deeply shocked by this because they didn't realize China was this this far advanced. Now, I am uh, my 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 betting is that the FT is right on this. Um, there's been no withdrawal of the story, um, and I would say that it really is an extraordinary and interesting story because it fits with some of the hypersonic um, technology that we've um, read about and talked about being deployed, particularly against naval um, targets. Um, you know, not so much, not so much um, intercontinental uh, nuclear work, but with these ones, one of the most extraordinary possibilities is that they would fly or could fly around the South Pole rather than ah, the North yes, Pole, yes. and therefore evade all of the United States NORAD um, anti-ballistic missile defences. So it's a very interesting, uh, you know, highly technical, highly extraordinary sort of um, achievement by China to, 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 have, to have done this if it, if it has been achieved. And it starts to explain why China has been so interested in the South Pacific and the South Pole, because they have built their, effectively their own military GPS system with a bunch of satellites, mm. some of which that are flying over the Pacific and the South Pole, obviously to be able to do this sort of thing. And the danger, of course, is that uh, because of the um, ability of these hypersonic missiles to basically avoid being shot down, they create a new uncertainty about whether you can combat them. That's right. And That's right. Uh, this is on top of North Korea testing a submarine-launched ballistic missile this week. Uh, it's it's not a great sign for um, stability. Well, on well the... also, Bernard, most of China is not a signatory to most of the um, 
Cold War um, nuclear, you know, start, you know, start is an is, a, is an agreement between the United States and the Soviet, and the former Soviet Union and Russia. You know, China is not really part of most of these um, arms control agreements because it was actually coming from such a such a you know long way back. But also a couple of months ago, we had a story which I did include at that time in the World Bulletin as well about something like 200 new silos uh, for Chinese nuclear missiles being discovered in. Um, in in, in um, Xinjiang province and yeah. another province in China, so there you know there's a there's a whole um, you know this is really bringing us to the point where China is um, not only the you know first or second largest economy in the world, but where it is a much more serious um, nuclear capable rival to the United States hegemony than than perhaps the Soviet Union ever was. Although not yet. I mean, we, it is still the case, of course, that, that, that uh, the United States and the Russia have far more missiles. But these kinds of leaps in technology, and I think this is also a there's, a, there's an aspect in here about complacency in the United States as well, that if this is taking US intelligence by surprise, then it reflects the same sort of complacency that we have about China, China as a civilian technology power. Mm. You know, we, it is almost certain that China will uh, you know, will obtain the technologies to produce, um, you know, the most sophisticated chips, which it doesn't currently have. It may have to invade Taiwan to do that, of course, but, uh, you know, hence the, hence the hypersonic missiles. Yeah, no, this is um, a really interesting development, which I think you were, you were absolutely right to focus on in your email this week, because um, it, it uh, changes the landscape a bit for us and sort of plays into some of the other things that are happening at the moment. You mentioned, we mentioned, we talked a couple of weeks ago about this extraordinary event uh, during the handover of power between uh, Trump and Biden earlier this year, where the head of the Joint Chiefs yeah. of Staff went to the trouble because he was so worried about ringing the Chinese to say, hey, um, you know... Anything you might hear may not actually be real. <laughs> we've, got, we've got the guy covered in gaffer tape with his hand off the, off the uh, football. You're right. Uh, it's just a, a crazy old world and so crazy that um, it, we may have to be friendly with the Brits again. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, China's... Um, uh, this increasing competition between China and America and to an extent Europe is that New Zealand is quite exposed with such a high proportion of our exports going to China and apparently not that many other places to sell stuff. Well, this week with the free trade agreement with the UK, we now um, have some other options to diversify some of these meat and dairy product exports. Kind of, yes, we do, but it's still relatively small. I just thought, I, I, if anybody saw Boris Johnson on that, I thought that was one of the most pathetic, <laughs> uh, Les Patterson worthy, <laughs> cringe worthy appearances, even by Boris Johnson with his Kia Aura, <laughs> and I don't know what time it is over there. You know, as if it would have would have been too much to work out that it's twelve hours that New Zealand was twelve hours ahead. It was absolutely pathetic. <laughs> and the whole sort of you know the, it went straight to the rugby analogy. And yeah. I thought I thought the PM actually handled it quite well by saying you know um, you know uh, th this is one of these situations where it's a win-win. The irony is though it looks like the All Blacks almost always win when we play England. Um, and it looks like we've won this one too. Uh, it's quite, it's quite good. When yes, it is, and well, it's also interesting that the US, the um, UK farming lobby is not entirely happy about, you know, our lamb replacing Welsh lamb. 
Yeah, and uh, so we're going to get uh, completely tariff-free for 97% of our exports immediately. And yep. then for uh, the the butter, well, the dairy products, and the meat, um, the not just the tariffs drop, but also the quotas increase dramatically. So we're hardly selling much uh, cheese and butter to Britain at the moment at all. Yeah, of plenty of wine, so we don't have to you know, ah. we can replace the, the you know the toxic French stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, and we can, and the fifty cents a, a bottle off the you know Chardonnay or the Sauvignon mm. Blanc at uh, Sainsbury's, that's good. Um, but what I thought was interesting here is that the increase in the quotas for meat and dairy for Britain, as well as the reduction in tariffs over the next 15 years, does actually provide a significant uh, opening for some diversification. So the numbers at the moment are very small to Britain, mm. but with those tariffs uh, coming off, but more importantly, the quotas going up by tens of thousands of tonnes, this does give us the option. Oh, no, no, that makes perfect sense for New Zealand. It's an excellent deal for New Zealand. Less so for the, for the Poms, but it's a very good deal for New Zealand, I think. You're right. And one thing to watch out for, too, is that it, it didn't get a lot of attention, but um, there was also a side deal being done around freedom of movement. Mm. And we, we didn't quite get the details, but it looks like we're going to see, you know, those traditional arrangements of overseas experiences, OEs, where you could go to Britain for a couple of years up to the age of 30 from memory. Well, it looks like that might be extended out to 35 and it go to three mm. years from two years. So we'll have people coming and taking juicy campus for three years around New Zealand in uh, order to uh, become Kiwi fruit pickers and ski coaches. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, this is, this is, this is all good. So, um, no, so that's, that's some good news on the, on the horizon. No, I thought uh, that was week. a perfectly sensible, it was a perfectly sensible deal. But it's very interesting to see, you know, the, the Tories in the UK getting a bit of a kick about it. Yeah. Now, just a, a milestone on, in the week, uh, the death from COVID complications of Colin Powell. Um, tell us, um, you've been... Yeah, I, I thought that was a, it was a, it, the, it, it, well, one of the funniest things, well, actually, let's let's treat him with some respect because he was a respectable and thoughtful human being. Um, you, you know, he, he could have been the first black president. Of course, he wasn't. And he wasn't really because of what he described as a blot, which was, uh, and, and I was thinking about this today, because he's of course 84, the 1991 goal four is uh, a very long time ago. Uh, a lot of people won't, a lot of younger people won't have even heard of Colin, Colin Powell necessarily. And, you know, he was a figure on our televisions in our presence, uh, at you know, a huge number of really critical uh, junctures in the world, particularly around the first goal four, the, the, um, the first Iraq war, which was uh, Operation Desert Storm. And then critically in 2003, by which time he'd become the first black uh, secretary of state uh, and appeared in the United Nations and really burnt up all of the credibility that he'd achieved from a life of service by showing a vial of what was supposed to represent Iraqi anthrax. And unfortunately, really backing up the fake, the failed intelligence, the wrong intelligence that uh, the entire premise of the of the 2003 invasion of Iraq was based on, and uh, as as one of the New Yorker's writers, uh, Robin Wright, described this week, that is regarded as the greatest, um, not that particular presentation, but the invasion of Iraq, you know, is regarded as the greatest foreign policy um, and military failure in the United States history. Yeah, and, and so he ultimately was was brought down in a sense by the 
militaristic um, warmongering Dick Cheney, the, the, who was the vice president at that time, and our old friend Donald Rumsfeld, who himself died relatively recently. Yeah, no, it's 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 sad in a way. Um, you're right. Uh, he was a um, a big figure and was used really to launder the. Um, the first. That's right. I think that's, that's a very good way to put it. But I think that's you know it's it's uh, yeah he was a he was a good you know as the Economist says in its byline in its um, in its uh, obituary today they describe him as a, a soldier in Washington. He was a good soldier. I just before we um, jump in to answer some of the questions, and mm. it's wonderful to see so many uh, questions throwing in there. And the last fifteen minutes or so is always the time to get to questions. But before we do that, I wanted to pivot back to um, the other big political and economic news in New Zealand this week, which was the surprise uh, coalition announcement, if you like, between yeah. National and Labour to dramatically change the landscape of our inner cities uh, or at least change the the legal rights attached to every su- every suburban section in New Zealand so that you can literally as of right put up a three-story three townhouse so essentially three townhouses three stories high yeah. um, uh, 12 meters high on every section in the country if you want and you don't have to get a resource consent so that means the neighbors can't um, complain about uh, this thing blocking out the being sun. Overlooked. Yeah, being <laughs> overlooked. That's right. Um, and uh, is completely shocked. Many of the you know uh, traditional supporters of national, the citizen ratepayer councillors who have spent the last four or five years mostly successfully fending off some of the densification moves. We mm. had the we had the epic Auckland Unitary Plan fight in 2016. You weren't here for that, uh, Peter, but it was a classic clash classic clash of the generations where young people desperate to get into housing. And this is back in 2016 when house prices were about half what they were now. And even then it was extreme. And uh, there was a lot of premature celebrations about um, the unitary plan allowing uh, a lot of um, new densification. And there has been quite a bit. Um, And anyone driving around um, Auckland uh, will see so many apartments being built. But in certain areas, um, Hearn Bay, for example, Peter. Mm, mm. God forbid that we should be able to go three stories in Hearn Bay. That's right. Tell me what's happening in Hearn Bay. Yeah. Um, Well, in Hearn Bay, it was mostly protected from the auction unitary plan. A lot of those single-storey villas, um, essentially, you weren't allowed to build the three-storey, three townhouses on that section. Well, it's included as well. And we're now in for an awfully big fight in next year's council elections where... The NIMBYs, if they've got their act together, will be um, campaigning hard against these rules. The problem for them, and the um, the good news for Labour, is that now National centrally can't really campaign against it. And I think this will create some interesting clashes at the, at the, the next round of National Party conferences, where Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop will walk in there and be assailed by um, outraged mm. of Remy Ware. Yeah, yeah. But Bernard, why didn't you didn't you write something about how the the the, the, uh, the bipartisan aspect of that or the oh, uh, yeah. the, the lead the opposition? I, I think the bipartisan thing is a little bit odd when you've got multiple parties in New Zealand. It's a strange. It's a very American way to see it. But that disappeared within about 112 minutes or something. Wasn't yeah, it? that's right. So, so there write? was a lot of excitement in that first hour or so, and then um, we got this. Uh, separate announcement from Judith Collins saying that National would would repeal uh, and switch back 
all of the three waters reforms that are currently going through mm. under the Labor government. Now, you may think, what the heck has that got to do with a bunch of um, townhouses? But just to step back a bit, the real problem in New Zealand is that uh, councils and the government for 30 years have been very reluctant to invest in infrastructure to build new housing yeah. and all the transport and parks and hospitals mm. and schools needed for that. So and she's given and then taken away immediately. Is that what's happened there? Exactly, because the Three Waters um, project, in my view, was effectively a fudge around the current Public Finance Act rules which stop governments from borrowing to invest in infrastructure. And the way it did this was that currently these water assets are owned by councils. And the, the idea was to strip those assets out of councils along with those councils' debt and then give those independent but still government-owned bodies the power to raise their own debt, which would be outside of the normal rules on how much debt that the government and councils mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. borrow. So it wouldn't affect the public sector borrowing requirement. Exactly. And also it would mean that by removing some of the debt attached to water assets, councils would be able to borrow more to pay for the pipes and the roads that go with the housing. So by effectively reversing three waters, when National gets back into power, whenever that is, it'll be sometime, and, uh, and which means if you're a council and you're thinking, right, I've got a whole bunch of new houses that are going to be built along this road um, because it's a popular road, and all of those one-storey standalone houses which have three people in them and a small pipe from two toilets going mm. into the, the sewer pipe. It'll be like Wellington. The, 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 the streets will be flowing with sewage. <laughs> you know, imagine being ghastly. Oh, like yes, yes. I can just imagine all flowing down the hill in Hoon Bay into those lovely, those lovely bays where you swim. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah. Uh, now, Bernard, we need, we've got a few questions on there on the oh, right yes, hand side, but let me ask you another one. Why did we get that momentary bipartisan thing and is there an argument that there needs to be a kind... I mean, there will be, obviously will be a Royal Commission into New Zealand's... I don't know whether we call them Royal Commissions here, but yeah. um, there'll be a Commission of Inquiry into the, into the government's handling of COVID at some point. Why do you think we haven't seen something of that order of a, a joint approach of Judith and Jacinda actually announcing, particularly after the SCAG report, mm. uh, announcing a kind of semi-joint approach to, um, to COVID and opening up? Yeah, there have been little little signs of it there, here and there, the Super Saturday um, uh, combination. But I think now the pressure is so intense from the business community and from a lot of small businesses, the outrage and the frustration and the financial pain uh, with the Auckland lockdowns and also particularly the South Island lockdowns. Um, of course, I'm based in Wellington and a lot of the media in New Zealand is based in Auckland. And there's not a lot of coverage about what's going on in South Island at the moment, where, of course, they haven't had a COVID case since last year. And I think one of the biggest pieces of news, news in the last week that I think, you know, will get everyone's attention who doesn't normally look at the news in the South Island was the cancellation of the Cup Week events in Christchurch. Yeah. Mm. So uh, this is, for those who can come from Christchurch, it's a really big social deal. So, I mean, the trots. Whoever goes to the trots? And I grew mm. up in Cambridge. Well, they do. <laughs> they, they, do. Mm. They, they actually go to this event 
not to look at the horses, but to look at each other, of course. Mm. And it's a spring, summery day. Everyone goes there in their best frocks and their best suits. It's the big social event in Canterbury. It's a sort of, um, it's how you measure yourself. And, you know, um, now lately, of course, a whole bunch of young people have gone there with fancy dresses on and gotten drunk. But um, it's a really big deal in the social calendar of Canterbury, in the South Island, really. And it was not called off. They're still going to have the trots running. The horses are going to be running around, but you'll have to be in your TAB watching the TV because no one's allowed in yeah. under level yeah, two. Very weird. I just want to call out Doug Gray, who presumably lives near here as well, has mentioned the a place just around the corner from me where a countdown is being built, which we absolutely don't need. I mean, if it was a faro, I could totally understand it, but there is a faro reasonably because we actually do not need a countdown, uh, which will probably lead to the nearby dairy closing down, which I'll be most upset about. But it was it was on a site, it's going in on a site which should have had 69 apartments on it on the ridge which is almost exactly what it probably should have had uh and yet it was objected to for stormwater discharges and that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about that um the infrastructure just isn't there and then and then nimbys use it as a as a way to to not get a 69 uh apartment uh thing being built now just one thing i want to mention because you've been defamed on this uh, chat, somebody said, "When did Bernard move from being a libertarian to a lefty?" Ah, this is and a fair, fair I question. I think that's extremely unfair because I have no idea where you are on certain positions, and and I don't think you flaunt. I mean, you you certainly believe in government control over things like Facebook that I don't, uh, and I think possibly you have a greater faith than I do about governments actually delivering on things. But I think that's a very uh, unfair label to give you with either a libertarian or a lefty. Thank you. Bernard. Yeah, uh, no, no. The the um the questioner is ah, is correct. He said as much on his podcast. Yeah, exactly. This is turning it is turning into a very dull form of pod, of um, talkback radio where the where the poor buggers on the other end can't speak. <laughs> no, no. The, the the questioner is is right. My views have changed over the last decade, in particular, from being. Pretty much, you know, your bog standard libertarian, let freedom reign, markets are better than government all the time. Because I grew up under Muldoon and, you know, the Polar Shipyard and all of that mm. stuff. And it was all very exciting. The um, the freedoms that were um, foisted on New Zealand after 1984. Mm. And for a long time, it felt like fantastic. You mean after after Muldoon's Hungarian state? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um but then we had those um, big changes in the early, late 80s, early 90s. And uh, I think the way that was done, the aggressive cutbacks, the uh, extreme measures to open up our economy and to throw a whole chunk of society aside is coming back to hurt us in a, a big way. And COVID is a great example of this. Um, my apostasy, as they call it, change of view, sort mm-hmm. of happened in 2008-9 when the global financial crisis and the way that the world's governments and central banks reacted to it, really the scales fell from my eyes. I had thought markets and everyone you know, in charge believed in fair markets and believed that if you did a bad thing as a company or a bank or whatever... You would be allowed to fail. There would be a consequence for it? There'd be consequences. Bloody hell. Yeah. No. But what we found, of course, was the um, bailing out of a whole bunch of bankers and the use of central banks and the ability to print money to make people... But, of course, we don't know what would have happened without, if if that hadn't been done. Although, 
you know, letting Lehman go was absolutely the right thing to do. But then they then they lost they lost their nerve having let Lehman go. That's they should have let others go. Yeah, yeah. And if but if they let AIG mm. go, the entire world's financial system. I mean, mm. I, I actually agreed with the decision to intervene to stop, you know, the world's financial <laughs> system collapsing. But after that, there should have been mm. consequences. People should have been put in prison. Banks should be, have been carved up. There should have been a lot more intervention to avoid the sort of concentration of power and wealth, uh, not just in the financial system, but amongst now the tech companies. And I think that failure to follow up afterwards and to impose some fairness and to reinstate moral hazard has... Um, yeah, so it, I think that's... Okay, reinstating moral hazard is not the same as you being some libertarian or a lefty, all right? Whether it's a moral hazard in housing, whether it's a moral hazard in our... In our uh, I mean, I think one of the areas where you've been very good, Bernard, not to just uh, be nice to you, but because uh, it's not my job, but, you know, you've, you've understood and explained extremely well the generational theft that's gone yeah, in New yeah. Zealand between... Um, boomers and boomers and the rest. Mm. Yeah, and it's a function as of as you put it. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's a function of and it's not just here in New Zealand, but all, all around the world, the um, those big structural forces around falling interest <laughs> rates and falling inflation w- were captured in the form of higher um, asset prices and weaponized by the money printing that went on twenty three trillion dollars over the last thirteen years and still going. That mm. um, I don't think. There has been a reckoning yet on that, and there will be. Uh, and unfortunately, no one has really, in a political sense, been able to challenge it or to reverse it or even even to talk about it. I mean, if if anyone in public life in America or the UK or New Zealand stood up and said, what's happened over the last 15 years is an intergenerational crime and someone should pay and mm. we should we should try to turn it around. And no one is saying that because um, you're a. Well, maybe 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 we have to get Chloe Chloe Swarbrick in there to do that. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. Uh, one of the other interesting things I've, I've found this week is that um, the Green Party wasn't involved in this coalition. No, no and, I thought that was very interesting. And and one of the risks here for the Green Party is that it tears itself apart, as what I call the the old. Leafy's brigade within the Green Party, the mm. uh, former people in the Values Party, often wealthy middle class boomers with a big focus on trees not being cut down and that's mm. it. Can we not be so mean to boomers? I think we have two of them here. Well, I'm, I mean, we're both at the very end of boomers. Oh, but we're actually. not really boomers. Yeah, no, we have <laughs> nearly enough money to be boomers. Now, shall we, uh, we don't have a skateboarding dog, but shall we do the Facebook story as the skateboarding dog story today? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it's a big one. So yeah. the, it's, I thought it, it got more attention than I thought it was going to, but this, this idea um, from a very, very good um, uh, uh, US tech magazine called The Verge that next week uh, Mark Zuckerberg might announce a name change for Facebook. So it won't be, as far as I can tell, a name change to the social network to the to what they call the the the, the blue app, which is the Facebook uh, social media app. But it'll be a, it would appear that there is a, a certain change to the company name in the same way as Google changed its name to Alphabet Inc. Uh, in order to embrace the idea that Facebook is more than Facebook, and so all of the crap that Facebook gets about being Facebook can be more evenly distributed across its other apps <laughs> of Instagram and, and WhatsApp and so on. But the, the, the critical thing is it's, it's about its next shift into the, quote, metaverse. Now, 
I find the metaverse what is the extraordinarily, well, I find it an extraordinarily irritating term. And of course, uh, like so many things, it has its root in, um, uh, in, um, uh, in science fiction. And the metaverse was described, uh, it me, I'm terribly sorry, in a book by uh, a venture capitalist called Matthew Ball as the metaverse is an expansive network of persistent real-time rendered 3D worlds and simulations that support continuity of identity, objects, history, payments, and entitlements, and can be experienced synchronously by an effectively unlimited number of users, each with an individual sense of presence. Okay. Facebook says Mark Zuckerberg is going to own this, own the metaverse. No, it doesn't. Sorry. <laughs> they say the metaverse is a set of virtual spaces where you can create and explore with other people who aren't in the same physical space as you. Now, uh, I think as with so many things, pornography is the obvious. Uh, 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 obvious. It always uh, it always the starts there. Mark Zuckerberg will not be doing, but you can bet other people will be doing. Um, but it is this. It's kind of you know Minecraft for capitalists. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you started reading that out, you lost me at venture capitalist. That's <laughs> normally well, no, normally you had me at venture an adventure capitalist. Ah, yeah. adventure capitalist. There you go. Yeah. Um, no, so no. We it's need ex- to address any questions before we go on too long. Oh yes. Um, Oh, yes, Darren oh, yes. points out. Darren Fortune, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I, it was very good. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Well, when you say an apology, I think he's, I think he issued something like a clarification, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was about as far as Winston Peters is ever going to no, go to no, an no, apology. No, no. Thank I, you. I'm yeah. so looking forward to the next stand-up when we can throw it in his face and, and watch it crinkle. Uh, <laughs> that, will, that will be fun. Um, so... Um, there's a question there from Harrison. Surely it wouldn't be like Auckland to build a bunch of new housing developments and not build the infrastructure. <laughs> yes, that's it a would ter- be very much like Wellington, actually. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. Wellington and Auckland and Christchurch mm-hmm. all do it. And the guts of the reason is no one wants to pay for infrastructure because they understandably think that they're not going to get all the use of it. Someone who isn't voting now, who isn't even alive now, will get use yeah. of it. And the, frankly, the best way financially to deal with that is to issue a debt instrument that lasts 50 or 100 years and then smear the cost out over yeah, that distance. Which we're not used to doing, really, are we? No. In fact, our Public Finance Act says we're not allowed to. Mm. And that's one of the things I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, that we need to have a debate about repealing and replacing the Public Finance Act to... Um, adjust for our new world where uh, it is investment in infrastructure to deal with climate change and housing affordability, which are the big needs, and to reverse this $1 trillion uh, transfer of wealth from uh, one generation or two generations of renters and, and then the next two or three generations of people who would be renters if they can't marry into wealth. And, um, oh, yeah. Marrying into wealth, now there's an idea I had. Yeah, ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, Excellent. Thank you, Bernard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Bernard is not qualified as a marriage counsellor or as a financial advisor, <laughs> no, no. but that is the maybe, best advice I've had all maybe, maybe in the future, you will have to be both a marriage counsellor and a financial advisor at the same time. Yeah, well, that's kind of being a parent, isn't it, really? <laughs> On that so note, are we dealing with any other questions or what? Yeah, no, I think that's about it. We're hitting the five o'clock mark, and I have really enjoyed today. Um, uh, can we block Kevin Kevin Palmer, please? Because it's just <laughs> that I'm too old for the. Butter off. 
Good stuff. Hey, right. um, so great to see you all there today. Thank you for your questions. It's been a wonderful um, thing. Um, so much more fun than the hour of um, vag that it could have been. Yeah. vagaries that we had from 10 o'clock till 11 o'clock today. Uh, stay safe out there, everyone. Ka kite no. Thank you very much, Peter Bayer. Thank you, Bernard. Talk to you later.